Welcome to another episode of Bow Sounds, the Pediatric GI Podcast, the official podcast of the North American Society of Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition, or NASPEGAN. I'm Jason Silverman, a pediatric gastroenterologist at Stollery Children's Hospital in Edmonton, Alberta, and I am joined today by my friend and co-host, Dr. Jennifer Lee, all the way from Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio. How you doing, Jen? Hi, Jason. I have slight offense that I never get called the favorite co-host, but it's it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> you know what? That has no meaning. Peter has robbed that of all meaning because we're all his favorites. So if everyone's your favorite, no one's your favorite. Yeah, that's, that's true. <laughs> so what are your summer plans, Jason? I feel like it's finally warm up there in Canada where you are. Oh, it's been, it's been hot here for a while, but it's summer vacation time. So my kids are in camps for the next few weeks, but we've got a couple of weeks booked off at the end of August and we have some tentatively drawn out plans to do a little bit of exploring as a family and also to visit some family back in the Toronto area and also to maybe, just maybe, leave the children with their loving grandparents and go off just as a couple for uh, several days. And mm. so that's what we are very much looking forward to. But there's been some recent airport issues here. Everyone I know has had horror stories of flights being delayed three and four times and uh, oh, yes. Arriving home a day late without their bags for five days. And so it's left me feeling a little skittish about booking multiple flights. So we might have to like streamline our vacation plans just a little bit or give, give us some flex time. Well, carry on. Just carry on your luggage. Give yourself some flex time. Totally worth going. You should totally do it. Oh, no, Will, we're, we're going. It's totally happening. I know there are people that are the masters of carry-on travel, and I've definitely done it for myself. I've not done it as a family of four with two young kids. Life goals. How was you, Jen? What were you? What, what are your vacation plans? Okay, so vacation, we just got back from Pacific Northwest, which I think I brought up in this episode that's coming up. And we went hiking and got to hang out with a lot of our residency friends. Our kids went to camp also. Highly recommend for anyone listening to look for something called safety camp. Mm. It's meant for kindergartners and first graders, and they teach all about safety. Oh, it's like intense, nice. though. Like my kids... They like found something on the ground. They were like, oh my gosh, mom, is that drugs? Is that, is that poison? I'm like, oh, what are you learning in safety camp? <laughs> but now like, you know, we're checking fire, smoke detectors. We're learning how to cross the street. We know about stranger danger, all the stuff we've talked about for years, but it's all in one camp. And the kids uh -huh. also learn traffic safety. So they are the cars. They wear little helmets. They bike around these little town that they create it in a parking lot. Super cute. It's like run by police officers and teachers. It's really great. Oh, that's highly awesome. recommend Safety Town. That that's awesome, and they're going to totally call you out in the car when you do things you're not supposed to be doing. Oh yeah. So I didn't buckle my seatbelt before I backed out of the driveway, <gasps> and my <sighs> youngest called me out, "Mommy, your <laughs> seatbelt is not buckled. I didn't hear the click." I was like, "Ah, yes, you are true." <laughs> 
at least you know the camp worked. Ah, <laughs> anyway, yeah, we leave for the beach this week. So I'm really glad that we're meeting today to do this intro for this great episode. Yeah, we are joined by somebody from the Pacific Northwest, Dr. Danielle Wendell, and to talk about the JPGN position paper on the management of central venous access in children with intestinal failure. It's a topic kind of near and dear to my heart, looking after these kids in hospital here. And there are so many different issues related to central line safety. And it's one of the main sources of complications and problems in this population who are now growing and thriving and doing much better thanks to advances in multidisciplinary care. And so this was a really great chance to break down all of those issues in, in detail. Super good, too, because it's coming out in the new academic year with new fellows who are taking calls that you might get about central venous lines. And Dr. Danielle Wendell was the perfect guest. She's the medical director of the Intestinal Transplant Program at Seattle Children's, an assistant professor at the University of Washington School of Medicine. And she works in the intestinal rehab program with patients who have central venous lines every day. And importantly, is the first author on that JPGN oh, yes, paper. That, too. Any announcements today, Jason? This is a JPGN episode. Yeah. Don't forget to claim your CME. Yes. What else? All, all of those. And yeah, this is a second collaborative episode with JPGN and, and CME. And everyone should, despite having great vacation plans for the summer and be focused on good weather and all of those good things, should be very focused on attending the Single Topic Symposium in the fall on technology, but also just come out to the 50th anniversary NASBEGAN meeting where everyone is long overdue to meet and greet and say hi. And, uh, and if you see any of our Bow Sounds crew while walking through the meeting, please stop and say hi. Yeah. Yeah. Just just was looking at the hotel last night. It's gonna be really great. Awesome. Well, on to the show. On to the show. Dr. Wendell, welcome to Bow Sounds. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, guys. I'm really excited to be here. And we're going to start with what some of our guests find the most challenging question. For our listeners who don't know you, how would you describe yourself in one sentence? It's a run-on sentence. I'll start with that. But I'd say that I am a wife and mother and an avid outdoors person and traveler who is passionate about advocacy and caring for children with intestinal failure. That is really good. We have had an increased proportion of guests that stick the landing on a single sentence without lots of separate clauses and too many commas. So that, I think that was great and it encompassed a lot. Well, I do have a follow-up question because in T-minus two weeks, we're flying to Seattle to go to Ana Cortez. Yes. We're staying at the Nantucket Inn with some of my friends from there. And have you ever been? And is it worth going? I'm super excited. Well, Anacortes, definitely. I haven't been to the Nantucket Inn, but you know the Pacific Northwest is so beautiful. Hopefully in a couple of weeks, it'll be a little bit warmer. We've been in a prolonged winter this year, and so it's still been really pretty cold and rainy. But by the end of the month, it should be nicer. But there's so much beautiful stuff to do. So I'm sure you'll have a really good time. 
They told us to bring mittens for the whale yeah. watching things. That's kind of year round. You probably need like a sweater to be out on the water, but it's so beautiful and it's like never humid. It's just really lovely during the summer here. Ah, cannot wait to come. Yeah. Anyway, so tell us about a book, podcast, TV show or movie that you read, listened to or watched recently that you recommend. Well, you know, I was thinking about this and I'm kind of a TV junkie and love to binge all of these newer shows that have been on. And we just finished the latest episodes of Stranger Things last night. So good. And it's one of those shows that in between, I'm like, I don't know. I don't know that I really like that show. And then I start watching it again. And I'm like, oh my God, I actually do really love this show. So we just finished Stranger Things last night. Okay. I am my list. So, I I'm so behind. It. I actually didn't watch season three. So I'm... I, You're really behind. I'm Jason. really, really behind. So now I have I have a lot of binging to do because it's it's definitely not something my wife will watch. So I definitely have to find some time. I think, you know, conference travel this year, totally. finally, when I'm, you know, on a flight by myself, that's going yep. to be Stranger Things time. And I'll probably yep. scare the passengers around me and that's okay. It's totally yeah. awesome. But make sure you give yourself a lot of time because this latest season, they're like feature length episodes. So like the last one was like an hour and 30 some minutes. So, oh, wow. Yeah. So multiple movies. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Wow. Okay. So we could definitely talk about TV shows and Stranger Things all day, but we'll, and we would enjoy it, but we should move on to our topic today. And so what we really wanted to talk to you about was central venous line management in intestinal failure. But before we get to that, maybe just to get started, how did you first develop your interest in intestinal rehabilitation? Yeah, it's it's actually it feels like it was kind of destiny. <laughs> There's a, it was a long many things that kind of lined up to uh, get me here, but it all started actually back in medical school. I my husband was in grad school in Boston, and I wanted to just go hang out with him for the summer, and so I was looking for what I thought was going to be a really easy elective in med school, and I was like, oh, nutrition sounds pretty easy. That sounds great. I'll go do nutrition, and so. I went for a month and did a nutrition rotation at Boston Children's and realized that it was not easy and that I spent a whole month learning how to write TPN and just kind of fell in love with it. I'm really a, a numbers math sort of person and love that kind of detail level. And so I fell in love with TPN there and then ended up in Pittsburgh for a residency. And the very first rotation that I did as an inpatient was on their GI intestinal care service. And so the first patient that I ever presented on rounds as a first year resident was an intestinal failure patient. And it was presenting to Rob Squires about this really complicated intestinal failure patient. I just kind of fell in love with that. And so step after step, it kind of led me to this. I really liked the surgical part. I liked the the procedures part, the TPN. And I always loved that kind of long-term relationship that you can make with the families. I mean, we're, we have closer relationships than a lot of their primary care physicians have with them and, and are seeing them more frequently and things. So, So I think putting those all together that it kind of really, I knew that this was my path all along here. No, that makes total sense. It's it's always great when you have that memory of that first patient mm -hmm. that you managed. One of yeah. my first patients that I managed on an elective in GI in, uh, in Ottawa, where I did med school, was an intestinal failure patient. And at that stage was very jaundiced, unfortunately, and, and had very significant intestinal failure associated liver disease, which 
you know, we see less of these days, but but it, it was a very memorable and impactful experience and probably one of the reasons, among others, that I, I got into intestinal rehab too. Yeah, I feel like you either, you, you take care of some of these kids and you either love it or you're like, gosh, I don't ever want to do that again. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. absolutely. I feel like I'm in the middle ground. I have a similar story about a, a favorite patient or early patient that I had and I just have to tell one story because I was pregnant during most of my fellowships. I had two babies in fellowship. Oh and in the end of my third year, I was, no, middle of my third year, I was super pregnant. I was on inpatient. It was the, one of the first patients I took care of who had a central line. And I'd been seeing him every day, like, you know, for weeks. And one day I didn't walk in with my white coat on. And this little kid who comes up to me and was like, <gasps> Dr. Lee, I think you have something in your stomach. I was like, oh, what do you think I have in there? And he was like, a baby girl. And I'm like, actually, <laughs> Very specific. Awesome. Anyway, it was very specific and correct. <laughs> but, I, you know, I don't get the opportunity to take care of a lot of patients anymore who have central lines. And so we really wanted to talk about central venous access in kids who have intestinal failure. And so can you walk us through the various types of lines that are available the pros and cons of each, and how do you choose which line you put in a patient if they end up needing one? Sure. And I'll say that, you know, in intestinal failure in pediatrics, it's so important to really think about this critically because these are kids that are probably going to need this access for a very long time, some of them their whole life. And so we have to think very carefully about both the type of line, where we're putting it, how often we're replacing it, all of those things. And so that's why it's really important to understand all of this stuff right from the beginning. So when I think about the different types of lines, I think about how long does it need to stay in? Where do we want to put it? And what sort of access do they have left? And so when I think about how long it needs to stay in, I'm thinking about is this going to be a pick line or is this going to be a tunneled central line? Those are kind of the big categories of lines that we usually use in intestinal failure. And there are some centers that do use picks more long term. And there's actually some good data that, that suggests it's pretty safe. But and I'll take one other step back to say that all of the data that we have in intestinal failure is really not great quality because all of these studies are based on small numbers, single center studies. And so a lot of the things that we know are really from experience, which is why papers like this, like this position paper that we wrote about this are so important because you can get experience from lots of different people that have done this for a while. So I digress back to what type of line. So pick lines we tend to think about as for kids that don't need access quite as long. Sometimes we'll use them if someone's had an infection and they really can't be without a line for a couple of days to try to clear the infection. And so we have to put a pick line in for a little while. But the majority of our patients we use tunneled central lines for. So when I'm talking to trainees, I usually talk about the different names that are out there because people will use trade names. So Roviax and Hickman's are the, the main names that we hear in the hospital a lot of the time. You'll hear people talk about all lines as being pick lines. So you have to be really careful about the terminology that you use. And so tunneled central lines are usually the go-to because they are more stable. There's a decreased risk of infection and thrombosis. But you have to be careful when you talk about that, too, because while there might be a decreased risk of thrombosis overall, if you do get a thrombosis related to a tunneled central line, it's probably going to be in a central vessel because that's where the central line is actually located. 
Whereas in a PICC line where you might have a higher risk of thrombosis overall, it's probably going to be a more peripheral thrombosis. And so you might not lose your central access associated with that. In terms of being more stable, we usually used cuffed tunneled central lines. And so the cuff of the central line helps the skin kind of grow over that. And that growth of the skin over that cuff helps to solidify it in place so it's more stable. It also helps to prevent, to some degree, infection. So cuffed, tunneled central lines are usually what we use. There are lots of other types of central lines. Ports are usually the one that we get the most questions about, but a port or an implanted central line is not really ideal for somebody that needs to be accessed every single day because the benefit of that port is that you can access and deaccess it, so you can, at times, have nothing hooked up to it. But in most of our kids, they have to be accessed every day. And so then you don't really have that benefit anymore. Also, when those get infected, it's a big deal and you have to have surgery and things like that. So we don't usually use ports. The few times that we will use them are in kids that maybe only need IV fluids once or twice a week, but that's really few and far between. And then, of course, there's lots of other lines that kids might need. But I'd say that those are the big categories of lines and kind of how we decide on them. I'll also say that we usually, we aim for the least number of lumens with the smallest diameter. So that's because the more lumens you put into a line, the higher infection risk, the higher thrombosis risk. They're often also very small lumens to try to fit them into that one line. And so a lot of times there's more dysfunction. So um, usually single lumens, and then you want to try to put the smallest diameter line in that will get you the clinical outcome that you need. Because if you think back to physics, anything that disrupts the flow of blood in the blood vessel can lead to stasis or turbulent flow. And anything that leads to turbulent flow can lead to a thrombosis or obstruction or down the road, you could get a stenosis within that vessel. So smaller lines are actually better for the patient. This might be the first time we talked about physics on the Bow Sounds podcast, so I'm kind of excited about that. <laughs> can, can I ask you to just maybe clarify a few like little follow-up pieces? So yeah. one was you, you mentioned about tunneled central lines. So for some of our listeners who are learners, if you could explain what we mean by tunneled central line. And same thing for cuffed picks, like what is this cuff and where is it located? And then the last thing, just to maybe tack on a piece that you haven't already covered, but I know is at least felt to be somewhat important is the material of the line itself. So silicone versus polyurethane. Yeah. yeah. So I'll start with the, the tunneled portion. And it's actually exactly what it sounds like. So in a tunneled central line, there's an incision in the skin, and then the, the line is actually tunneled through the subcutaneous tissue until you get to the vessel that you want to puncture. And that's actually important because not only does that make it more stable, but it also, there's a separation between the outside world and the skin and where it punctures into the vessel. Whereas in a PICC line, you're going straight from the skin into the blood vessel, which is another reason that there's a, a somewhat higher risk of infection with a PICC line versus a tunneled central line. There are some places, some surgeons or interventional radiologists that will tunnel in from the back. In little kids, that can be really helpful, and especially in the kids that are pulling at their lines a lot. And so we, there are some times that you can get a, a child with a tunneled central line that will actually tunnel out to the back. But it really depends on preference and surgeons and who's willing to do what. So so that's the the tunnel question. The cuff question. So I'll put a little plug in for the paper because there's actually a really beautiful image library within the paper. 
It's all online access, so anybody can look at these and can use the the images as well. But there's a really great picture of what a cuff looks like. The, the image library has a lot of complications that you might see with a line. And in that particular image, it's actually a, a cuff extrusion. So like the, the insertion site has dilated and the cuff has actually come out. But it actually, it kind of looks like a little sponge almost that is circumferential around the actual line. And it's right where the line sits under the skin. And so it's like a little donut around the line and it allows the skin to grow over that and really make it more stable. And you had mentioned cuffs on picks. And so sometimes pick lines can be cuffed. A lot of times they aren't cuffed. So it depends because most people are using picks in a short term basis. A lot of people will choose uncuffed pick lines, but there are cuffed pick lines if people are trying to use those lines more long term. And the last one was about polyurethane versus silicone. Oh, yes. So historically, we've recommended silicone catheters, and that's actually the recommendation that's in our paper. But that comes from the fact that ethanol locks are in some studies shown to break down the polyurethane lines, those are more in vitro studies than in actual human studies. And so there are some people that have used them in polyurethane lines anyway. And the reason we put that in there is that ethanol is the antimicrobial lock that we have the most data on. And so while it's actually not available right now due to regulatory changes and shortages, We put that in there with the hopes that we'll be able to be successful with our advocacy work that we're currently engaged in with the FDA here in the U.S. to try to bring those locks back because they are incredibly effective in reducing central line infections. Thanks for that. So one of the common and preventable complications of central venous catheter use is central line associated bloodstream infections or CLABSIs. And in the paper, you talk quite a bit about some ways to try and mitigate that but can you first maybe talk a little bit about the potential consequences of CLABSIs and, and why they're so important to zero in on? And uh, what are the recommendations for standardizing our approach to these events? Yeah, CLABSIs have historically and continue to be really one of the main factors in morbidity and mortality in patients with intestinal failure. So although we've really decreased our incidence of CLABSIs with a lot of the new techniques that we have for preventing them, they still remain one of the the most dangerous things for our kids. And so some of the consequences of having CLABSIs include things like worsening liver disease. We know that repeated CLABSIs contribute to intestinal failure-associated liver disease. We also know that when kids are sick and have to be admitted to the hospital, they we just don't make progress in terms of gut adaptation and advancing feeds and trying to get them off of TPN. And so there have been studies that show that increased infection rates actually prolong the use of TPN. And that really makes sense because kids come in, they're sick, they you might have to stop their feeds, you might you know end up back at square one in terms of restarting them again. And a lot of our kids have a lot of motility issues. And so Every time they get sick, their gut slows down and then they're throwing up again and you just can't advance their feeds. And so although it's more of a a side effect of just being sick, the CLABSIs really do hinder our progress for intestinal rehabilitation. So those are some of the things. And then I'd say loss of access is, is the other thing, especially in central line infections that we can't clear and that we have to replace the line anytime 
you insert a catheter into a central line, there's a risk of losing that as a potential future access point um, because of the risk of thrombosis. So those infections that aren't able to be cleared and you have to replace the line, you're increasing your risk of loss of access as well. Since you touched on that notion of replacing the line in this context of an infection, you mentioned this in that paper as well, but what sort of guidance would you recommend around preserving the line versus removing it when you have to? Sure. Pretty good data out there that we can successfully treat CLABSIs through the infected central line for many different types of infections and intestinal failure. And so that's a little bit different from other populations that have central lines. A lot of times in those populations that don't need to keep this central line for the rest of their life, when they get an infection, they just pull the line. Because we're so concerned about preservation of access, we really try to treat through the CLABSI whenever possible. And so some of the important parts and things that even happen at larger intestinal failure centers are some of the logistical things. So like making sure that antibiotics are actually going through that central line, not a peripheral line. And and I find that sometimes too. And so just checking on things like that. So you put the antibiotics through the central line. Sometimes the antimicrobial locks can be really helpful as well as a treatment for central line infections. There are certain organisms that some centers will pull lines automatically for. The one when we talked as a, a group that there was some consensus about was a fungal infection. So most centers will pull a central line with a fungal infection. The only thing that's really been able to show clearance of a fungal central line infection is an ethanol lock. And with the the shortage of that and inavailability of that, most centers, even when they were available, wouldn't leave lines in with a fungal infection unless that's a patient that doesn't have any other access or anywhere else to go, in which case we will try to salvage it. Other centers do have some other organisms that they've found that they're not readily able to clear. And so depending on the center, there might be some other organisms. But for the most part, fungal infections are the ones that we'll pull it for. Usually we want to see that there are multiple positive cultures before we pull the line. So we want to see that there's at least two positive cultures on appropriate antibiotics. And that's really the key point. So, you know, making sure that you have the sensitivities and then looking back because, you know, was it two days of an antibiotic that it actually wasn't going to be sensitive to anyway? And so giving them the chance to clear on appropriate antibiotic therapy. A lot of our kids also present to outside hospitals. And so making sure that you're in good communication with those outside hospitals, sometimes that means that the families have to call us if that hospital's not calling us so that we can help them, help guide them in the management of that line because a lot of times they might want to pull it as well. So so we're really possessive of our central lines and our patients in general to help really long-term with their central access. I just wanted to follow on with one particular point because you, you bring up a really good point about patients that out of necessity present to maybe peripheral centers or centers closer to their home and making sure that they are treated appropriately or that the risk and seriousness of a potential collapse is recognized in that peripheral center. And I think it's really great that you highlight in the paper the use of those emergency letters to help sort of standardize the approach with these are our recommendations. Can you just kind of walk through that a little bit? Yeah. So it's super important. And 
especially a lot of centers and ours in particular, we have kids that are our catchment area is huge here in Seattle. You know, we're taking care of kids all over the Pacific Northwest, Hawaii, Alaska. You know, they're really remote. And so when they are sick, they just have to go to the closest emergency room. And so we set up all of our patients with an emergency letter. The one that's in the paper, it's actually really nice. We are able to work with Epic and get that particular letter into Epic. And so anyone that has Epic can use that letter. And it's nice that it actually populates all of the patient information as well. And then there are just a few areas that you can put in specific information about, like how many stools a day somebody has usually, what antibiotics you want them to start on initially, all of those sorts of things. So it's really important, too, because in the heat of the moment, we don't want our patients' families to have to remember all of that. And it's also really hard to tell an emergency room provider, you know, what to do. And so if it's a letter that's coming from their physicians, we've found that it's a lot easier for families and for outside providers. It also has our contact information on it. For sure. And what do you recommend for first providers to start or to do in the presentation of a, of a CLABSI? Yeah, so we always recommend to do cultures and we usually we recommend both a central culture out of the, the central line and a peripheral culture. And the reason for that is so that we can really gauge the degree of the infection. You know, is this something that's really localized to the central line? Are they actually bacteremic? How long are we going to treat them for? And occasionally, while we don't usually count anything as a contaminant in our patients, occasionally you'll have a chance, have an occasion where the peripheral will be positive and the central was never positive and you can consider it to be a contaminant. But so we get those central and peripheral cultures, and then we start broad-spectrum antibiotics right away. The choice of antibiotic really should be tailored to each institution and the specific antibiotograms that you have at your institution. So what are the bacteria sensitive to? We here at Seattle Children's use cefepime as our first line, but there are lots of other centers that use vancomycin, ceftriaxone. So it all really depends on what the microbial sensitivities are in your area. It should start out with broad spectrum antibiotics and really should not narrow for the first 48 hours. And the reason we do that is that there are some are slower growing organisms that might not pop up for those first 48 hours. There are some studies that have looked at, could we do this for shorter amounts of time? Could we do this as an outpatient? But none of them have had large enough samples to really be able to say that it's safe to do that. One of the reasons that we, and we ask any patient of ours that has a fever, and we define a fever as 100.4 or higher, that any fever, regardless of other symptoms, that they come into the emergency room and have this workup be admitted for 48 hours of observation. And the reason that we do that is that there's a really high mortality risk associated with collapses, as I had mentioned before. There was a study out of Pittsburgh, actually, that showed that 70 percent of their intestinal failure patients that presented to the emergency room with a fever did have a CLABSI. And so that's a huge number. So you can't really tell who it is that just has a viral URI versus a central line infection. And there's nothing to say they don't have both. We actually have had lots and lots of kits that have had influenza and a line infection or an ear infection and a line infection. So it's really important, regardless of other infection, that they still be evaluated for that central line infection. Yeah, no, that definitely makes a lot of sense. And I think that it goes back to, you know, taking us back a few steps to that prevention of a clapsy 
And you had already mentioned there's a, a lot of layers of defense that we can use. So can we start by talking a little bit about care techniques? So, you know, as a fellow, I don't remember getting as much detail on what it, the site care looks like, what do we expect our parents to do versus when do we have home health. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of caregiver training and what that looks like? Yeah, it's a huge thing to train the caregivers. And part of the reason it's so important is that depending on where you live, you may not have home nursing. And this is something that's very different depending on insurance, what state you live in. And even if you have home nursing, it's very common that the home nurse calls out or can't come in for some reason. And it's really imperative that the parent or caregiver knows how to take care of the central line and hook them up to TPN and all of those things. So we also recommend that there be more than one caregiver that's trained. So in case mom's sick and or is in the hospital or is away, if that's the person that was trained, there needs to be somebody else that can be a backup. So having multiple caregivers trained and the person or the the people that do the training is also variable by site. So some places it's the bedside nurses that are doing most of the training. Some places it's the home care agency that's doing the training. There usually is some degree of training that the home care agency requires before they'll take on a patient and send them home. But each center has a little bit different rules and regulations around that training. A lot of centers require a room in to happen. So having the parent or caregiver do all of the care while the patient is still in the hospital for 24, even some centers do up to 48 hours before they go home to make sure that any troubleshooting that needs to happen can happen there at the bedside with the nurses in case there are any concerns. That training that happens is really important that we think about it as just the beginning of the training because it really is something that continues on because we're trying to teach these families so much. And it's really way too much for any one person to understand all at once. And so it's something that at every visit we're doing teaching, refreshing, and reminding them of all these things that we're asking them to do. So in terms of specifics, it's really hygiene. So, you know, as sterile as possible, using some of the chlorhexidine or other antimicrobial patches that go under the central line dressing and like some of the antimicrobial caps that go on the ends of the, the central line. So all of those put together is, is what you'll hear people talk about as a central line care bundle. So that's just the term that, that describes all of those different techniques that we know help reduce the infection risk. So I'd say that those care bundles have really helped to reduce infection risk along with the antimicrobial locks. They all kind of came in to the picture around the same time. So when you look at these drastic reduction of central line infection rates, it's a little bit hard to tease out in some of them how much of it is actually improvements in our techniques and our training and our care of the central line versus how much of it is the actual antimicrobial locks. But it's probably a combination of the two. And you mentioned before, you know, hooking up the TPN and doing some of this care bundle. What about other things? Are they, you know, do we train them how to give their child a bath or how to how to remove the dressing and replace it? All of those yeah. things as well. 
So that's also center-specific as well. So definitely we talk about bathing and, and not submerging the central line in the water. Some centers will do a double dressing. Some will use things like AquaGuard or, or specific products to cover it up. The question about central line dressing changes, this is also center-specific. There are some centers that train all of their families to do their own central line dressings and other centers that don't want their families to touch the central line dressing, if at all possible. We tend to fall somewhere we're kind of in the middle. We train all of our families because, of course, that, you know, 18-month-old is going to rip their dressing off at some point, and you have to have some understanding of what am I doing to try to protect that. But we like to get to know the family first a little bit before we say, yes, you're safe to change that dressing. So the central line dressing needs to be changed on a weekly basis. So every seven days to make sure that the integrity of the dressing stays intact and that there's no you know, moisture or anything that's building up under that. So you can examine the insertion site of the central line. So every seven days they have to get changed. If they need to have some home nursing come out to the home or if the family has to go to a certain place, whether that's a hospital or the home care's offices, there can be barriers there sometimes in trying to get to places. So sometimes that will be a reason why we train families to change the central line dressing. And I'll also say that actually during COVID, it really became apparent why it was so beneficial to have parents be able to change the central line dressings because a lot of people lost their home nurses. A lot of offices were closed. And so there were some centers that didn't train their families on how to do this. And sometimes their dressings wouldn't get changed as often as they should have been because they didn't have the parents trained. And so that was one point that we were really glad that we had trained all of our families to be able to do this if they had to. No, that makes a lot of sense. And then you also mentioned kind of keeping things as sterile as possible at home. Like what are your recommendations as far as hand hygiene for the families and gloves and that kind of thing? Yeah, we do recommend sterile equipment as much as possible. So things like sterile gloves and trying to keep the area as sterile as possible. Hand hygiene definitely is super important. We talk about that it really in all aspects of our, our patients' care because the central line, we think of that as one closed system. And so anywhere that there's a break in that, it's really important to keep that as sterile as possible. So keeping our, their hands clean when they're, they're touching the central line, using as much sterile uh, equipment as possible, it can be extremely challenging, especially in the like under two crowd and even older than that to keep these kids, you know, still and do all of this as sterile as they possibly can. So it often does take more than one person as well to do these dressing changes. But you'd be surprised at how well trained some of these very young kids are and that they'll just lay there and let their parents change the dressing. That's not true for all of them, but a lot of them do end up just getting used to it and understanding that that's what needs to happen. And I think what I'm hearing just to kind of summarize a little bit is that as far as when it comes to prevention of eclapsy, we've really come a long way. We have these care bundles that we talk about, and there's also a lot of training that's involved for the families to really help prevent these clapsy infections and what to do in the case of a potential clapsy, like go to your local ER. And the last thing that's important for our listeners is it also sounds like there's variability based on where you're practicing. So if you're someone who's doing your fellowship somewhere and you're about to go to a new center, you might have to think about relearning what is done in that individual institution because you can't assume that it's going to be the same. I totally agree. And that's pretty true about all of intestinal failure or intestinal rehabilitation management. You know, there are kind of, we have these 
overarching themes that we have, but the specifics of how things are done at one center versus another, there's a lot of variability. And that's actually why we wanted to write this paper in the first place, is to try as much as we can to minimize some of that variability to help improve care for our kids. And so we actually, you know, we're, there are other topics that we're going to be doing position papers on to help try to streamline and, and get some agreement on how to manage kids with intestinal failure. Yeah, I think that's really, really important. And and I'll put a plug out for the Pediatric Intestinal Rehabilitation and, and Failure Symposium that's going to be coming up hopefully in person again in the fall in, in Toronto, because getting together as a group of people who are involved in care of this really rare, small number patient population, you know, having those opportunities to compare notes and have those discussions is is super important to try and streamline and make care more uniform and increase our, our collective understanding. Well, and we need a lot more people that do this. There aren't that many of us, and it's a, a rapidly growing population. And so anybody that thinks they might be interested, that's a really fun conference. And there's a lot of really basic, good information that is really imperative if, if it's something that you're interested in at all. For sure. And and just hacking on to that, you know, f- very similar to the NASPAN conference where there's a postgrad course each year, the PIFRS Symposium, they do a primer day where you have sort of that introductory overview of core topics in intestinal rehabilitation. So even if it is something that you're not currently involved in, but you think you might be heading to a center where they have a larger program and you want to brush up, it's a great opportunity to learn more. Or the Naspigan Special Interest Group too, right? Like mm-hmm. I, I, I assume you guys will have a meeting maybe at the annual meeting coming up in October. And so anyone who's interested should definitely look out for that as well. Yeah, we are always welcoming to new members and to ideas for topics for you know, future position papers and things that we can do. So the more the merrier. So moving on from plugs to another kind of plug, how's how's this segue? (laughs) Thrombosis is another important potential complication in central lines. And it's often not clinically apparent necessarily when a child has thrombosis, particularly at the early stages. So given the importance of maintaining line access sites, knowing that loss of line access site is, is one of the core remaining uh, indications for multivisceral transplantation, for example. Can you talk about the role and recommendations for a radiographic surveillance of central venous catheter sites? Yeah, it's the majority of central line related thrombosis is asymptomatic. And so because of that, it's really important to screen for it. So we had a lot of debate about, you know, what should we do to screen for these and landed on ultrasounds, not because it's necessarily the the very best way to find them, but because it's less invasive, it's available to everybody. It's something that can be followed pretty easily. And so we recommended in the paper an annual vascular ultrasound of the upper central vessels to screen for any thrombosis. The really, the more definitive study would be a venogram, but you need to have people that are skilled at at performing these, and it's definitely more invasive, requires anesthesia. There are centers that use MR and CT for these things as well. But again, depending on the age and the size, you might need some sedation or anesthesia for those things. There's radiation involved in the CT. And so ultrasound is what we settled on, and we do recommend an annual ultrasound for that. 
if a thrombosis is discovered, we also recommended initiation of anticoagulation for at least six weeks. But it was really six weeks to three months, depending on the center, and then reevaluation of the clot that was found. A lot of centers will involve hematology in these cases, but not all of them. So it really, again, goes back to that variability at, at different centers. Different centers also have variable practices in terms of prophylaxis with anticoagulation. And this is something that we actually looked at our group along with the group at Sick Kids in Toronto to look at our different protocols. Here at Seattle Children's, we tend to actually stop anticoagulation if the clot has resolved or if it looks like there are now chronic changes that aren't going to be changed or aren't going to be affected by further anticoagulation. We will actually stop it. We've changed our practice a little bit in that we do a modified hypercoagulable workup first. And if there's anything that's questionable on that, we will leave kids on anticoagulation. But here at Seattle, we actually will stop anticoagulation. And when we looked at our experience versus what they do in Toronto, which they'll leave kids on anticoagulation at a prophylactic dose after that first thrombosis, Looking out, we did have more second thromboses, but when that analysis was actually extended out even further, they still had second thromboses at almost similar rate. And so the question for us was more that, you know, it's a quality of life question, too, because a lot of the families hate giving the injections. The kids hate the injections, you know, and we're signing someone up, someone up for potentially years and years of anticoagulation. And so it really depends. Is it that you're going to have that second clot sooner or later? So I think that there's definitely a place for prophylaxis, but I think there's also a place for conversation about it. But again, it's also it's a small study. We don't have huge numbers. And I will say that once kids in our group have a second thrombosis or if they have evidence of a previous thrombosis, so like collaterals or one of the vessels looks like it's gone, then if they develop a clot, we will leave them on prophylaxis more long term. Thanks for bringing that up because that was going to be my question. We wasn't discussed in, in any great length in the paper, but I've always been kind of curious and it's been a topic of conversation, a lot of back and forth conversation between our group and our local thrombosis team yep. about not just secondary prophylaxis, so extending anticoagulant therapy, you know, past the period of active treatment for a recognized thrombosis, but even question about primary prophylaxis. Primary, so we yeah. all know that these kids are at increased risk of central line thromboses. What about starting them from the get-go on anticoagulation prophylaxis to prevent that first thrombosis and formation of collaterals, et cetera? Is that something that you guys had looked at locally or discussed? Yeah, we didn't discuss that. You know, I think it's really hard because a lot of times we tend to find these clots when kids are sick too. So, and, and when kids are really sick, they might make a thrombosis, even if they're on anticoagulation, you know, and so there are other factors that go into that and that first clot formation. But you also really, I think that one of the things that I, I think needs to be focused on is really the quality of life, because a lot of the things that we do for our patients, there's probably a very best gold standard way to do it. But you have to think about what are they doing on a day-to-day -day basis? What is their life like? What are all of the things that we're asking these families to do and all of the stressors that that puts on their life and really weighing the risk and benefit to that? So I don't think that there's a clear benefit yet to something like primary prophylaxis. It might make us feel better that we feel like we might stop something 
but you're also giving these kids injections and you know we already really over medicalize them for for good reason and so then to do something that might not have all that much benefit i don't think we have the data to say that we should be doing that yet So that's a really good transition to our next topic. But before we get there, you had mentioned that a lot of these thromboses are found when children are sick. So is there any role for doing that prophylaxis when they get admitted to the hospital for some other reason or when they're acutely ill? Is that something that you discussed? That's a really good question. We did not discuss that. It's so complicated because these kids tend to bleed a lot, too. And so it's something that we're seeing more and more kids with GI bleeding, especially. And so when they're sick, they there's that coagulant, anticoagulant sort of push and pull. So we probably would not start them on it prophylactically when they're sick. And who knows if it started when they were sick? That's just when we look. So it's not clear that it's being sick that necessarily caused it. It's just that that's often when we'll look for something because we're looking to make sure, like, is there a clot somewhere that could be a nidus for this infection? So a lot of it's association rather than causation. Yeah, that makes sense. So now moving on to my favorite topic, which is improving the quality of life of our patients. And we've talked a lot about the risks and things, but... You know, kids just want to be kids and we want our patients to have full filling and full lives. And so I'd like to talk specifically with these central lines. A, are there things that you absolutely recommend against? And then can you kind of talk through some guidance that you give families as far as school and sports and swimming and pets and all of those fun things? Yeah, this was actually, I think, my favorite part of the paper, partly because these are the things that we deal with on a daily basis, but there's basically no research done about them and what we should be doing. And so I think that this is one of the most important parts to get people together to kind of poll the group and see what do people do about these things, because they are really important. And they're the things that often affect our patients and families and in their day to day lives. So I'll start with school. And I'd say that starting school is one of the most stressful parts or points in life for a lot of families after that kind of infancy and trying to understand their illness and those sorts of things. Once they have to go to kindergarten, that can be very stressful for TPN-dependent intestinal failure patients, mostly because a lot of times their parents have had absolute control over everything about their day-to-day lives. And then to have to relinquish some of that control and send them somewhere else where, you know, there's lots of other dirty little kids running around and, you know, lots of potential issues that come up. So one of the things that we talk about is really preparation. And so talking with the the school, making sure that there are individualized learning plans and things like that, if there's any delays that kids have, or even if not, just to, to make sure that they have access to the things they need. So we often will send an emergency kit with the kids to school with the strict instructions that no one should ever touch that line unless they have to. So we really try to minimize interaction with the central line whenever possible. But things that that can be involved or included in that kit are things like gauze, an extra dressing, a clamp tape, those sorts of things. So if somebody saw that the side of the dressing was almost up, that they could put a piece of tape on it or reinforce it or something like that if they needed to. But in general, we ask that the family call the or the, that the school call the family if there's any concern about the central line at all. I'll also say that we write lots and lots of letters. So 
We write lots of letters to the school that kids can have snacks whenever they need it, that the kids can have access to water whenever they need it. So all of those sorts of things kind of tie into that smoother transition to school, which may not have to do necessarily with central lines, but helps with that transition in the family. In terms of swimming, so this is another one that's very variable by center. So technically, the safest thing to do is to say that kids can never swim, that the line should never, you know, go in the water, that, you know, that's just something that we won't allow them to do. And there are some centers that say that to families. In reality, a lot of families are going to choose to let their kids swim, whether we want them to or not. And so we take the position that we would like to educate them as much as possible on the safest ways to do that. So there's a, a continuum. There's all the way from the dry suits that are available that are very expensive and that kids grow out of very quickly. We actually have a few kids that have them that will pass them down to other patients because they grow out of them. And so we kind of have like a, a dry suit library. But aside from that, thinking about the type of water that they're going to be in. So there's various bacterial content in anything from a stream or a pond or a lake, which has the higher amounts of bacteria and ocean water, and then up to like a chlorinated pool. So we would rather have them be swimming in a chlorinated pool than a pond. The other thing that we talk about is reinforcing the dressing. So some families will put on a second larger dressing that kind of covers up the, the primary central line dressing. We'll do a dressing change if there's any moisture after the swimming. A lot of them will just do that dressing change. So they'll let them go swimming the day that they're going to do, like the day before the dressing change anyway, they're going to do their dressing change. But it's another reason to make sure that families know how to do a dressing change. So so that's kind of the, and then we also say that a central line should not be submerged in the first about six weeks after it's initially placed. While that skin is healing, while the skin is growing over that cuff, it's really solidifying in place. So that's the time that we are more strict about not submerging it. That's kind of where we have landed in terms of, of swimming recommendations, but each center has their own recommendation. In terms of pets, it's really just making sure that the tubing is safe. I've had patients that their pet rabbit has chewed their line, their cat has chewed their line. These things, you know, like this tubing is swinging around there and, you know, the pets see that and they don't know it's a central line and they're playing with it. And so making sure that things are secure and safely away from pets whenever possible. But that's like the biggest thing in terms of pets and central lines. And then I'd say activities or sports are another big thing that we get questions about. And usually we recommend against contact sports, but otherwise, basically making sure that the central line is covered. Some kids will use wraps, whether that's like an ace bandage or the different um, vests that are available to help keep the line as close to the, the body as possible. And then the other thing is not totally central line related, but just making sure that they're well hydrated. So especially if they're out playing soccer during the summer and they're sweating more and things like that, they might need normal saline boluses or, or something else to help kind of get them through that. And we can often anticipate that. But that it also just brings up that communication with the families because those might not be things that they're thinking about and they might just sign their kids up for football without really talking to you about it. So making sure that you're talking about all of their extracurricular activities is important. What about traveling, like going through airport security, anything? Yeah, it's huge. We've had kids have all of their TPN lost in their luggage. So number one, you, you don't ever check your TPN. 
carry it on. It's very heavy, but if you have to travel with your TPN, make sure that you carry it on. Don't check it. Depending on your home care company, you might actually, if it's a national home care company, you might just be able to have your delivery transferred to wherever you're going if you're within your home country which is the easiest way to do it. They, in terms of other like flying things, the TSA actually has within their disability unit, they have a support specialist that you can reach out to. They recommend at least 72 hours before you travel to reach out to them and they can help speed the process, especially through the like security checkpoints and things like that. And we've had patients that have said that that's really helpful. Having the emergency letter available, we always ask families they need to plan ahead. So know what emergency services are available, what hospitals are around you, wherever you're going. You'd be surprised at the number of central line infections that happen on vacation. And so like knowing what your options are International travel can get really challenging and the TPN is usually good for a week. And so if it's only a week, then they can often take their TPN with them and travel to where they're going. If it's going to be more than a week, sometimes there are a couple of different options you can talk about just doing um, IV fluids for some extra days or interspersing that in there. There are some standardized TPN bags, but a lot of times they're not really appropriate for pediatric patients, so you have to be careful with that. Now with this listserv that we have, there's a listserv for intestinal failure centers, um, which is international, and there have been some groups that have had a lot of success reaching out to even international intestinal failure groups that have been really helpful in travel planning as well. It all comes down to planning, and really that's kind of the, the take-home message for everything that these families have to do. They have to plan every aspect of their life. Yeah, no, I think that's really, I, I think it's the important takeaway is there are a lot of things that families take for granted, families who don't have children with intestinal failure that can't be taken for granted. And there's a lot of support that the intestinal rehabilitation centers can provide to these families. And uh, all the more reason to have lots of ongoing conversations with families in advance of them heading off and signing up for football or things like that. Yeah. All right. So we've talked about line infections. We've talked about thromboses. Those are sort of two of the biggest challenges, potential challenges for our families with, our, with their central lines. Sometimes there are other mechanical issues, though, like occlusions or breakage. What are the recommendations for dealing with those issues when they arrive? And what happens when children start to lose access sites because of them? Yeah. So I'll start with breakage. So because our overall mantra in intestinal rehabilitation is to preserve access, we try to repair lines whenever possible. And so there's there are a few studies that say that it's safe and effective to repair lines and it doesn't increase the, the risk of line infections specifically in an intestinal failure patient, although, again, they're small studies. But because of that, if it's a possible to repair a line, we usually try to do that. There are some centers that have a cutoff for that. So, like, if it's been repaired a certain number of times that they want to replace that line, but that's center-specific. There isn't any data that says there's a certain number that you need to to replace it after. If you've seen a repaired central line, though, sometimes they get longer and longer and longer every time they get repaired. And so I have seen some kids that have this like big lasso of a line that's been repaired so many times. And so you might get to a point where it's just not really feasible to keep repairing it. But um, in order to preserve access, we do try to repair lines whenever possible. There's also no data out there about whether there should be like an antibiotic block or something like that that's instilled at the time of a repair. Different centers have different views on this, but there isn't data to support that requirement. So that's 
the, the issue with repair. In terms of occlusion or a line that's malfunctioning, this is something we deal with all the time. So it could be that there's a clot within the line. It could be that there's a clot outside the line, so a catheter-related thrombosis. It could be that the line is positioned such that the tip of the catheter is up against the, the vessel wall. There could be a kink or a loop or something in the, the actual tubing that makes it not work. And so we put in the paper kind of diagram a flow sheet of um, a suggested um, steps if there is a mechanical or we think that there's a mechanical obstruction. Really, a lot of it depends on what sort of mechanics are happening with the line. So you can either flush it, but you can't draw back or you can't flush it and you can't draw back. Those are completely different situations. So especially in a child that is completely TPN dependent, the situation where a line can't flush or draw back, that's more of an emergent sort of thing. And they need to come in and have that line probably replaced if it isn't functioning. But if it's a line that you can flush, it infuses, it does okay from that perspective, but you can't draw back, then you can kind of walk down this pathway. So we usually start by actually repositioning the child. So is it that if you like raise their arm up that that tip then moves away from the wall and now it works just fine? Redressing the line is sometimes a help too because sometimes it gets kinked under the dressing. If those things don't help, then an x-ray is actually can be helpful. Sometimes you can see a kink. Sometimes you can see that it's impinged under a clavicle. Sometimes you can actually see that the line has completely flipped up and is headed towards the you know, the head instead of down towards where it would be. So you can see a lot of things with an x-ray. If all of those things look fine and it's still not working, then we typically will recommend TPA, trying to break up that clot with TPA. We said in the paper that as long as there's a nurse or someone that's administering the TPA, that it could be done in any setting. Different centers have different thoughts on that. Some centers will require patients to go into the emergency room to have that done or an urgent care center or something like that. We've had a lot of success with home nurses going out and doing TPA at home. We've not had any issues with that, but there are theoretical, not so theoretical risks of bleeding associated with TPA. We usually will recommend trying that twice. If with two rounds of TPA, it still is not working, then it needs to be further investigated, whether that's with interventional radiology and doing a dye study or looking to see could there be something going on with that vessel like a stenosis or something else that might be causing a problem or it might just need to be replaced. So we're, we're trying really hard to, to get that line to work before we actually have to replace it. Salvage that line, if possible. That's right. So, oh yeah, that's, that's the summary. No, I'm just kidding. No, you know, I think that this has just been so helpful for someone who doesn't take care of patients who have central lines on a routine basis. It's really, really helpful to hear these details. And I think it's a good reminder for all of us. As we're closing the episode, you know, looking back on your career, what has been the most valuable advice that you've received? And what advice do you have for our listeners? I think, especially in early career, career, some of the best advice, which I also take with a grain of salt, is to never really say no to opportunities to collaborate. I think that sometimes we get focused on, well, but this is what I want my career to be. This is the focus that I want to have, especially early on when you're first starting out as an attending. But some of the things that you gain from, you know, writing that review article or writing that book chapter with that faculty member that maybe that chapter isn't exactly the thing that you want your career career to be built on. And it's going to take a long time.
time. But what you might gain from that is that that person now knows like, oh, you can write something. Oh, you can get something done on a timeline. Oh, you're somebody that actually wants to do these sorts of things with me. And I can definitely say that although I ended up writing a lot of things that weren't necessarily things that I was super interested in or necessarily were my focus, I think I gained a lot of relationships out of those opportunities that have really served me well. So trying to say yes to as many things as you can early on to get those experiences. So then later on, you can be a little bit more selective on the things that are going to help you kind of focus your career on what you want it to be on. Well, that's clearly helped you get to where you are here as first author on the Central Venus Line position paper and, and on Bow Sounds today. So thank you so much again for being here today and, and walking us through this really important topic. Any final words for our listeners? Yeah, I think just one last plug for just intestinal rehabilitation as a field. You know, this is something, like I said before, there's lots of really cool procedures. There's lots of nutrition. A lot of people are really interested in nutrition. We get to work in these awesome multidisciplinary teams very close with my surgeons, my nurses, my dietitians. I'm much more supported than some of my colleagues in terms of that and that it's actually a very small community. And so it's a really great way to get to meet people all across the country and internationally. And so anybody that's at all interested, it's not something that's always focused on in fellowships and in training. So if anybody's at all interested, you know, we're all really pretty nice, open people. And so if you ever are interested and want to talk about it, you know, definitely reach out to any of us and we can help kind of create an experience for somebody who might be interested and might be at a program that doesn't have that opportunity. Great. Thanks for that. And thanks again so much for being here. Yeah, it's been great. Thank you guys so much meet you. It's nice to meet you too. Well, that was another great conversation. So good to break down that CBL position paper kind of point by point and go through all of those topics. And I think, I think it's great review for anyone who works in this field, but it's especially useful for anybody who's new to practice or doesn't necessarily look after kids with intestinal failure and central lines as often, just to be aware of all of those issues and best practices. And if you don't already, be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at at Sounds and on Facebook at at Pediatric GI Podcast for the latest news and updates on upcoming episodes. If you like what you heard and want to help us out, it would be really great if you did one or more of the following three things. One, tell somebody about the podcast. Two, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It really does help people discover the show. And three, on our Buzzsprout page, there's a link to support the show by making a donation to the Naspagan Foundation. And you can also get there through www.naspagan.org. And any money you donate helps support some of the amazing things that the Naspagan Foundation is doing, including supporting pediatric GI research and public education programs. And since you made it this far, you might as well claim your CME. So go to the link in the show notes and get the CME. It's free. And as always, the discussions, views, and recommendations of this podcast are the sole response responsibility of the host and guest and are subject to change with advances in the field. Thanks for listening. Till next time, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.